This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Speaking today with the scholar and literary critic Peter Brooks about his new book, Flaubert in the Ruins of Paris. It's a marvelous and illuminating book, Peter, and one that to my mind speaks as directly to our 21st century now as it does to the 19th century then. You give your book the subtitle, The Story of a Friendship, a Novel, and a Terrible Year. Maybe you can begin with a word of further explanation under each of those three headings. Sure. Maybe start at the end, a terrible year. The French have long designated that year, 1870-71, as the terrible year. It uh, started with a, a ridiculous war between France and Prussia, which quickly led to a crushing French defeat and even the capture of the Emperor Napoleon III, followed by the declaration of a republic in Paris, followed by the Prussian siege of Paris and a a winter of incredible hardship, uh, cold, starvation, all the lights of Paris went out, followed by capitulation, and then the uprising known as the Paris Commune, um, which is partly people who refused to accept the capitulation and took over the city of Paris themselves and ran it as a commune, whereas the official government uh, retreated to Versailles. And then eventually the French army invaded Paris from Versailles and slaughtered Communal. So by the end of this terrible year, you have the worst class warfare that France has ever known, and far worse than anything that most countries have known. So that's the terrible year. The friendship is that between Auguste Flaubert, uh, the novelist, and his great friend Georges Sand, or Royal Dudevant was her real name, George Saunders, her pen name, author of dozens of novels. And the novel is Flaubert's Sentimental Education, which was published just shortly before the terrible year began, and which he thought ought to have been read as, as prophetic of those events. Sentimental Education is about Flaubert's own generation, and its principal historical event is the Revolution of 1848. And I think Flaubert thought that the way he portrayed the events of 1848 ought to have led his his compatriots to, uh, how shall I say, a more cautious attitude as they entered the events of 1870-71. In any case, Flaubert came down from Rouen in Normandy, where he lived right after the crushing of the commune, as soon as the train started running. And as he toured the smoking ruins of Paris, he said to his friend, Maxime Ducombe, if only they had understood sentimental education, this never could have happened. I think he meant that very seriously. If they had taken his own historical novel seriously, it would have changed um, later history. Anyway, uh, a great deal of responsibility to put on literature. Well, tell us then a little bit about the novel itself, the the method, the what gives it the quality that Flaubert thinks is prophetic. I mean, how does he construct the novel? In, in what way is that different from other novels or 
is that a 19th century invention or, or is it does he believe that that one can get at, at the historical substance easier no more directly more easily with a, with a novel than than with a academic history I think so. And I think in, in the 19th century, in France in particular, uh, the writing of historians' history and novelists' history come uh, very close to one another. I mean, there are people who say that the example of, of Walter Scott to both novelists and historians uh, led to the invention of, of social history, really. And I think Faubert really is making a claim. He said that I want to write the history of my generation making a claim that he can understand the relation of historical event to individual experience better in the novel than, than most historians can. And the way the novel's set up, its subtitle is Story of a Young Man. You meet the young man um, just as he's beginning his law studies and follow him through his, his early apprenticeship in various things, including love, um, up to the point that the Revolution of 1848 breaks out in the novel. And he is, as Henry James kept saying, why him? Uh, he's not really a participant. He's more of a sort of semi-participant observer, not particularly impressive as a person, but good as a kind of camera lens for noting what's going on from the very beginning of the revolution through to uh, the moment where the new republic is snuffed out by the coup d'etat of Louis Napoleon. So I think, you know, as, as um, Scott is alleged to have been the first novelist to do, you have the intertwining of the individual life with historical event very carefully worked out by Flaubert. And, and his, you know, reading his correspondence, you realize how absolutely intent he was to get every historical detail right. And, you know, he's writing against a backdrop of history that he really has mastered. So in that sense, it's one of the most honest and probative historical novels I think you'll ever read. And that is maybe why it wasn't so well received by the critics when it was published, because maybe they didn't understand it. It, it didn't have the usual uh, romantic uh, narrative. That's absolutely right. And, and as he recognized, as, as his friend George Son said to him, and as he recognized later, um, it lacked what he called falsity of perspective, meaning that it should have had more of a romantic plot at its, at its heart. It should have distorted events more to make them stand out in greater relief. It's almost too... I don't want to use plotting, but it's too detailed and, and honest an account of historical event to have made an immediate appeal to his contemporaries. In some of the historical novels that we now read, the, the, the history is more like decoration, I mean, and decor, it, uh, rather than substance. Is that another method that Flaubert comes up with? Well, I think that's absolutely right. In, in, in so many historical novels, his, history is sort of the, the colorful tapestry in the background against which you play out a romantic plot or, or an individual ambition or whatever. Whereas Flaubert really wants to get um, into you know, 
the causative factors of history and what people are saying at a given point in the revolution of 1848, which of course plays out in several stages. It leads first to a very democratic and liberal regime and then eventually to to the election of uh, Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte. The first time France has an election with universal manhood suffrage, and what happens, the man with the greatest name recognition, that is, um, this Bonaparte nephew, nephew of the great Napoleon, gets elected, and then he commits his coup d'etat and has himself uh, declared emperor and snuffs out all the generous dreams of uh, 1848. So I think, I think that's right. I think Flaubert wants, this, wants to stitch the individual story into the historical story, so they're not separate. One of the reasons that the book seems to speak so directly to, at least to myself, is, is the, the parallels between the, the empire of Louis Napoleon and the Second Empire in France and the administration of both Ronald Reagan and, 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 and Donald Trump. I mean, isn't, isn't that that period in France where we come up with the invention of finance capitalism as we now know it? Absolutely. No, it's a period of, uh, of the creation of great wealth. Um, the Industrial Revolution comes to France a little bit later than to England, of entrepreneurial capitalism, the creation also of a great deal of urban misery, uh, the creation of a real urban proletariat, and a time of terrific corruption um, in real estate and politics and everything else. The, the rebuilding of Paris undertaken by Osman just involved incredible speculation and corruption. And, and for Flaubert, at least in retrospect, it's all fake. The whole thing is a kind of artificial pasteboard kind of regime. And he's rather glad to see it all go, even though he had prospered under it. And I think you and, and um, a couple of friends of mine who've read the book have, have, have sensed that there's something very pertinent to what's going on now. And, and Flaubert and Sand, two great writers, uh, in opposition, not knowing quite how to resist what's going on, but um, needing to resist and feeling that it's the role of, of the intellectual to resist. I'm going to read a, a couple of quotes that I think are from Flaubert's letters, making that point, and then maybe you can comment on a little further. I mean, in one letter, he, he's talking about France and the Second Army. Empire. Everything was fake. Fake realism, fake army, fake credit, even fake whores. <laughs> and, then he, and then he goes on to say, the current folly is a result of too much stupidity. And this stupidity came from an excess of jokery. From too much lying, we become idiots. I mean, that's like the New York Times writing about Trump. <laughs> it, it is very much. And that, uh, Flaubert always traces things back to an excess of, of stupidity um, on the part of compatriots. But yes, and, and, he, and he sees that, you know, I guess inauthenticity is maybe a, a modern word that we use of, of the Second Empire, that it was all a kind of glittering fake. Um, and once it collapsed, it collapsed like that overnight. Even the army <laughs> was a fraud in the sense that French 
the French thought they had the best army in Europe with the best arms. Both turned out to be untrue. The general command of the army was totally incompetent. The French railroads were incapable of getting the troops where they were supposed to be, and so on. So the whole thing seemed like a fake, and the fake eventually, to Flaubert, reposes on a kind of basic dishonesty and, and lack of intelligence. And I think that is what we're undergoing now, and uh, we need Flaubert's to denounce it. <laughs> Edith Wharton, when she was writing about the Gilded Age, the American Gilded Age, late 19th century, said that the uh, a frivolous society can only achieve dramatic significance by what its frivolity destroys. <laughs> and, 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 and there is something of this, there is a lot of that in, in Flaubert's novel and sentimental education. I mean, the the idea of the our invasion of, of Iraq in in 2003 we were supposed to have an invincible army turned out otherwise i mean right. it, it, because we have an army that is 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 created to stage fireworks displays and uh show business it, it's it's you know, we haven't won a war in 70 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part I of mean, the problem. But the, 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 the deeper problem is why, why get into them in the first place? And uh, that was certainly yeah. true of the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, the, the reasons for it were, were absurd. And even the emperor didn't want to go to war. It was really his his much more bellicose wife and the assembly, the the, the, the legislature that pushed him into it. Is Flaubert what we would call a conservative? That's a very interesting question. And you'd certainly say that about the early Flaubert, though I'm not sure it's entirely accurate uh, even there. He considered himself a Mandarin, someone who believed in the rule by an intelligent elite. And he certainly was not a Democrat in that he thought that universal suffrage um, led to uh, the election of demagogues like uh, Louis Napoleon, and that's even without the Electoral College. Uh, he evolves uh, during his lifetime, and by the end of the, the terrible year, he's moved much closer to George Sand, and he accepts the Republic. He's terrified that there might be a restoration of the monarchy, which seemed very likely around 1873, because the assembly was dominated by monarchists who wanted to see authoritarianism returned to France. Um, he comes to appreciate the republic as a regime that divides his compatriots least, the one where they can sort of bury their differences best. And he particularly appreciates a, a republic that is, is not ideologically uh, driven, that is just trying to muddle through and do the best it can in preserving liberties and uh, national security and all those basic things. And he says that, you know, governments that have been based on ideological commitments have usually ended up murdering people. Of course, this is this is a big concern of, of, of French in the 19th century, looking back to what happened in the Great Revolution, where noble ideas degenerated into the violence of the reign of terror and so on. So he's certainly a partisan of social order, but he's also above all else, a partisan of freedom of thought and, and speech. I mean, there he uh, 
That's the, the libertarian uh, side of Flaubert. So I think he thinks that a republic that doesn't try to impose its will too much is the best of, of possible regimes. Talk about some of the characters in in the novel. I mean, there are several of them, and, and they are very carefully drawn. I mean, there's the, the revolutionary, the banker, the... Uh, Defeat, artistic flaneur, and a woman of, of, of influence. And why is it that those sketches, those characters, to me, are so recognizable? I mean, it, it, they're more, they're, they're not stereotypes. I mean, because he gives them real life and, 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 and presence. Maybe you can mention a number of them because they are memorable. I, I agree with you. Well, there's Frédéric's school friend, De Laurier, who is absolutely uh, penniless, but, uh, you know, w- ambitious, wants advancement. Um, and yet he's enough of a malcontent that he can be recruited into the ranks of, of revolution. There's the, the bohemian uh, Usene, a playwright and journalist, who's always cracking jokes, uh, even in the middle of revolution. There's Perehan, the artist, who's always sort of prostituting his whatever talent he has, it's not great, uh, to the latest political position. There's Sisi, uh, the traditionalist provincial aristocrat, who ends up back in the provinces with a, with a heap of children by the end. There's Dussardier, who's probably the most sympathetic of, of this cast of characters, who's a, 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 a clerk and an exploited, exploited proletarian, who's the one who sort of never wavers in his um, belief in the people and uh, their right to a better regime. Then one of the most interesting figures, uh, Senecal, who uh, begins as a puritanical schoolmaster, who then becomes a figure on the political left, but ends up moving to the extreme right, becoming a police officer who, at the moment of the coup d'etat in 1851, kills his old comrade Dussardier. And I think that that's a prophetic figure uh, of someone who will show up again in in Dostoevsky, in uh, a number of political novels of the 20th century, this 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 movement from extreme left to extreme right, and uh, a, bet- a sense of betrayal of his uh, original ideals, out of a kind of pitiless logic. And then um, you mentioned uh, Dombreuse, the capitalist entrepreneur, whose goal is to curry favor with whoever's in power. There's that amazing epitaph for him after he dies that he, he he would have paid to be able to sell himself to whatever regime is in power and um, i think that's the most pitiless uh, portrait in 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 the novel of the newly rich um industrialist exploiter who represents the regime of of the second empire in particular we have quite a few uh characters on our own public stage that uh, yes. match the description of, of D'Ambrose, at, at least that is my yep. my view. Now, Absolutely. We, we come now to the question of, of, of could the novel have, if properly read by his contemporaries, avoided the war, the Franco-Prussian war, as well as the French commune, and that raises a 
problem, and I can't remember. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote it, but I don't remember whether it is you talking or Flaubert or or Sand. The problem: How are idiots supposed to profit from the lessons of history? Well, I think that's the basic contradiction in Flaubert's position. I mean, he's he's castigated his contemporaries as idiots and yet said they ought to have read and understood his novel and mended their ways. There is a kind of basic contradiction there. And I think the the, the contemporary reviews of the novel, which you mentioned earlier, uh, just prove that point. Very few people uh, really understood the novel. They found it dreary and, and cynical. And... Uh, they weren't but ready. he's not a he's not a cynic. Flaubert is not, not a, cynic. a cynic. You're right. Um, he's a disappointed idealist, and a disappointed idealist can sometimes sound like a cynic. But I think I think there just weren't many people ready to understand his novel or or with the patience to read it carefully. Ford apparently said you had to read the novel 14 times before you really understand. Stood it. I'm not quite sure he came up with that number, and I don't think I've read it 14 times, but I've certainly read it half a dozen times. And it is true that the more you read it, the more the more the sort of undertones come out, and the more you understand uh, how really subtle and and, uh, and and amazing it is as a novel. But I think the book reviewers who were faced with it in um, November 1869 just reacted very superficially and ideologically to it. The one uh, really great review I mentioned in the book came from a young journalist, fairly unknown at the point, named Amy Zola, who would, of course, go on to to uh, do his own uh, version of these events uh, much later on. I remember uh, I first came across the book at college in, in, in the 19... 19- 50s, and I can remember reading it twice uh, and being very taken by it when I was in college. And then I'd I read it at least a third and fourth time before I come to New York in 1960 as a journalist. Uh, but I have to tell you that that my understanding the the way I looked at at the the 1960s as they were being played out in in uh, in New York in in this was formed by by the Flaubert's novel written a hundred years earlier I mean the uh, (laughs) well I think you probably understood it earlier and better than I did then Um, I think it was only after the 1960s that I could look back on that period through the eyes of Flaubert, so to speak. What is the difference? Explain to me an, a, another difference. I, again, as a young, as a young student, I was also taken with the novels of Balzac, who's a generation earlier than Flaubert, right. and there, there are parallels, but there are differences. What what are the I, I think Flaubert is uh, Balzac is as great a writer as as, as Flaubert, but but the uh, but but what are the distinctions that you would draw in terms of uh, the the spirit of the age? Uh, it's interesting you ask, since I'm sitting here thinking about writing my next book on Balzac. Balzac's heroes, though they often come to 
terrible ends, are full of energy and, and optimism about conquering the world. There's almost a kind of, how should I put it, aural fixation in Balzac. His heroes seem to think they can swallow the world, you know, digest it. And they don't all succeed by any means, but nonetheless, it's that kind of appetency that that drives the plot. The young hero comes to Paris, and you know, within a within a few weeks, he's been initiated into the highest circles of society, and and met the most powerful journalists and the most beautiful women, uh, be they aristocrats or or courtesans, and uh, the, the whole thing has a kind of tempo to it, which is really remarkable, and at, at a kind of melodrama, which is very uh, real and sincere. It's not fake at all about uh, the, the contrasts uh, in life. So I, I see Balzac as belonging to um, an age in which heroism and optimism uh, still seem to be operative in the world, whereas Flaubert, who begins at that time and, and, and loved Balzac and read all of Balzac, feels disillusioned and, and, and wants to take his distance from it. And he, you know, he felt that as a youth, he was too much of a romantic himself, and he's got to drive out that romanticism from himself in order to write more honestly. You're, you're speaking about Flaubert there, I'll tell you about right? Flaubert, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let me ask another question. The, uh, here we have, but Balzac is also trying to get at the substance of history. He's another person that spends a lot of uh, thought and time making sure he's getting the details right. I mean, he's, he's a, an extraordinarily fine reporter, as, as, yes. as is Flaubert, right? I think you could say that uh, at Balzac's time in the 1830s and 40s, um, there's almost no distinction between uh, journalism and, and, and novel writing. Um, I, I don't mean to say that it's like new journalism that they're they're inventing it, but uh, journalists and novelists are often the same people. Uh, they rub elbows all the time. They write in the same publications, and then you know, come the mid 1830s. Um, Emile de Girardin, the editor of the newspaper La Presse, has this genial idea of publishing novels in the newspaper. And if you look at those newspapers, the novels appear on the front page, um, the bottom third of the front page. And this is the invention of this serial novel in, in France. And actually, Balzac's the very first one to write a serial novel in the daily newspaper. So I think that the history of the moment, as recorded by journalism and the history of contemporary societies recorded in the novel are very close at that point. But also, uh, novels are being published in, in serial newspapers by by Dickens, also by Tolstoy, by Dostoevsky. I mean, this is something that happens with novels in the 19th century, right? That's right, right. Even even Henry James uh, publishes a, a lot of his novels in, in serial form, though that tends to be in, in, in monthlies like The Atlantic rather than uh, the daily newspaper. But if I'm not mistaken, at least for France, I, I, I know exactly when it begins. It's 1836 and, and Balzac's the first, though not, not the best at it because he had trouble disciplining his imagination to that that daily dose that has to you know, be chapterized in a specific way. He was beaten at it by Eugène Sue, uh, who um, published The Mysteries of Paris starting in 1842, which is probably 
the bestseller of the French 19th century. What happens to that uh, idea of the novel as as history, as it, you know, in the moment after the let, let, let's say after 1950 in in America. I mean, we come up with what they, was called the new journalism, where where there, there's a generation of journalists that is try, are try, are trying to bring uh, novel a novelist privilege to their accounting. Of, of facts, but it's very thin stuff. I mean, w- when you read back on it. Yeah, I mean, I think there are very few triumphs of that kind of writing. I would say Norman Mailer, um, The Armies of the Night, is 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 one. I mean, uh, you might say that it's too much about Norman Mailer himself, but that's that's quite an extraordinary book, don't you think? About the the March on the yes. Pentagon. I uh, think yeah. some of the work of Gary Wills, I'd say, is is um, a little bit like that. I mean, his book, Reagan's America, is I mean, that's more strict journalism, but still it's a very uh, inventive and imaginative account. But I, I agree with you. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to have really produced much in the way of masterpieces. Nor in the years, say, since Mailer, I mean, Roth, but, it, but in the last 30-odd years, in, in our gilded age, the, you know, the equivalent of the second empire in in uh, in France uh, I don't know of any novelists who are trying to write at, uh, along the you know with the same beast in view as as Flaubert I think that's right and I'm not sure why it should be that way uh, I, I, I think you know novels with the ambition of uh, Sentimental education of really trying to give the history not just of a single life but of a generation are few and far between. Uh, and I can't think of any examples from our time that 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 really hold up that way. Maybe when we're through with this talk, I'll think of one, uh, but uh, doesn't come to mind at the moment. But anyway, I I have to tell you, Peter, that to me this was a. a a joy to read your book, and I, uh, because it's it's it speaks, it seems to me to speak directly to where we are now, in, in, at least in the United States. And and um, uh, thank you for taking the time. And I, I hope the book has a wide, broad, and deserved success. Well, thank you so much, Lewis. I mean, I I I do feel that it holds up some image of what great writers ought to be like in a time of uh, crisis. So uh, maybe maybe that will give it something of a readership. Let's hope. Thank you, Peter Brooks, for speaking with us today about your new book, Flaubert in the Ruins of Paris, the story of a friendship, a novel, and a terrible year. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. Mm-hmm.